Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Tonight, take your Bible and join me in John chapter 14. And I want to read a passage from John 14 and also from John 15. As we move to the third and final part of Article 2, which deals with the doctrine of God, having previously looked at God the Father, God the Son, and now we come tonight to what has been called or who has been called the misplaced member of the Trinity. Some have even said he is the forgotten member of the Trinity, and that being the Holy Spirit. And actually, when you come to the Bible, uh, there's not a whole lot said about the Holy Spirit, at least in comparison to what you have said about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that that is intentional. And I also think is instructive, as we will see this evening as we walk through this article. But even though he has often been misplaced and forgotten, uh, we only do so at our peril because the Bible does speak very clearly about the person of the Holy Spirit, even more so about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I fear that many Christians suffer in terms of their walk with God because they do not understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, obviously, because of charismatic and Pentecostal excesses, uh, we certainly need to be cautious. But unfortunately, some have gone to the other extreme, and the ministry of the Spirit is virtually unknown to far too many people in evangelical churches, including Baptist churches. Jesus said a lot about the Holy Spirit, particularly in John 14, 15, and 16. In fact, the greatest concentration of teaching on the Holy Spirit is found on the lips of Jesus in this particular passage of Scripture. So in John chapter 14, beginning with verse 15, Jesus is speaking, and John records, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you, number one, and will be in you, number two. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And when he says in verse 18, I will come to you, he is not talking about the second coming. He is talking about the fact that he will come to them in the person of the Holy Spirit of God. Then move over, if you would, to chapter 15 for just a moment and look at verse 26. John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And again, look at chapter 16 and verse 13. However, when he, note the pronoun there, when he, the Spirit of truth, notice he has said that now three times, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Verse 14 is so crucial. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it unto you. 
Well, Article 2, Section C of the Baptist Faith and Message reads as follows. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God fully divine. And that's very important. His full deity is affirmed at the very beginning of this declaration and this article. He inspired holy men of God to write the Scriptures. Through illumination, he enables men to understand truth. He exalts Christ. Isn't it interesting? The Baptist faith and message quite well just uses three words there. He exalts Christ. In other words, the Bible is clear and the Baptist faith and message is accurate. The Spirit does not seek to draw attention to himself. He does not seek to exalt himself. His ministry is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He convicts men of, number one, sin. Number two, of righteousness. And number three, of judgment. That's language taken exactly verbatim out of John 16. He calls men to the Savior. And he is the one who effects our regeneration. The new birth is brought about by the Spirit of God. At the moment of regeneration, the moment that we're saved, the moment of our conversion, he baptizes every believer, not uh, physically, but spiritually, he baptizes every believer into the body of Christ. That is taken out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He also cultivates Christian character. He comforts believers, and he bestows the spiritual gifts by which they serve God through his church. He seals the believer until the day of final redemption. In fact, his presence is the, in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. In other words, his sealing us is our security. It is one aspect of the fact that believers will persevere, that believers are eternally secure in Christ by virtue of this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And finally, he enlightens and he empowers the believer and the church for worship, for evangelism, and also for service. Now, on page one, Page 2 and the top of page 3, I give you some of the more important texts related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even if you look at the verses that follow Article 2, Section C, uh, concerning the Holy Spirit, you will notice that there are far more references to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, he is there. In fact, he is there in Genesis 1. It is the Spirit of God that is hovering over creation. But the Spirit is not nearly as prominent in the Old Testament as he is in the New. And I think I can show you in a moment why that is indeed the case. But some of the key phrases that you find are some of the key texts. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. David said in Psalm 139 and verse 7, when he talks about the omnipresence of God, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Of course, the answer is there's no place that you can go that the Spirit of God is not already there. One of the great texts in the Old Testament is found in Joel. It is fulfilled on uh, the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2. In fact, when Peter stands up and preaches his great Pentecostal sermon, he begins that sermon by pointing out that what you see today at Pentecost is the fulfillment, at least in part, 
of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, second time, I will pour out my spirit in those days. But then you come to the New Testament. And the New Testament is filled with references to and insight into the ministry and activity of the Holy Spirit. John 4, 24, God is spirit, Jesus says, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I mentioned a moment ago that the greatest concentration of teaching about the Holy Spirit is found on the lips of Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16. I read a moment ago for you John 14, 16 through 17, but let me read it one more time and make a point of observation. I will pray the Father... And he will give you another helper. It is the Greek word paraclete. Uh, some translate it comforter, uh, helper, encourager. All of those uh, catch different facets of what the word paraclete means. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, another encourager, another comforter. The word another, by the way, means another of the same kind. So just as I have been there to comfort you, he will come to comfort you. In fact that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of the truth. Actually, there's a definite article in the Greek language before both the spirit and before the word truth. So it is the spirit of the truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for now watch this for right now, as he is saying these words to the disciples, he dwells with you and future tense. He will be in you. Uh, let me uh, raise a couple of questions and answer them theologically. Was the Spirit of God present with believers in the Old Testament? Yes. Uh, was the Holy Spirit involved in regenerating believers in the Old Testament? Yes. What is the difference then between the Old Testament believer and the believer following Pentecost now? Not only is the Spirit of God with them, as Jesus says, He is now, because of Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit, He not only dwells with you, He will be in you. And that is a new uh, manifestation of the work of the Spirit that comes about following the death, burial, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, we read John 14:26 a moment ago. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. John 16:7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth: it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of. There's that. Article taking language exactly out of John 16. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they don't believe in me. Of righteousness, because through the resurrection of Jesus going to the Father, he demonstrated he was indeed the righteous one. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because through the death... The burial, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Christ, Satan, the ruler of this world, he has been decisively defeated and judged. Well, you move to Acts 1-8. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 2, 1 through 4 simply points out that when the Spirit of God came, all the believers were filled with the Spirit. And the last two uh, lines of that verse, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. One of the great texts in the New Testament concerning the Holy Spirit is Romans chapter 8. We think of Romans 8, and uh, we jump to verse 28 because we love that promise, for God causes all things to work together for uh, them who love Him or are called according to His purpose. And it is a wonderful, wonderful text. But prior to that, uh, Paul spends a lot of time in Romans 8 talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, Romans 8, 9 through 11. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, same thing as the Spirit, does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In other words, no Holy Spirit, no Jesus. No Holy Spirit, no salvation. It's that simple. And if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, Paul points out that the ministry of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is also the same Spirit who will resurrect us and glorify us as well when we receive our resurrected, glorified body. Romans eight fourteen through 16. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 1 Corinthians 12:13 speaks of the baptism, baptizing ministry of the Spirit. For by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Greek, whether you are a slave or whether you are free. We have all been made to drink into one spirit. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Don't miss the Trinitarian reference there. You've got the spirit. You've got the Son, and you've also got the Abba Father reference as well. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In Him, that is in Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were, there's that language again found in the Baptist faith and message, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is what, Paul? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, theologians often remind us, the only way that you could lose your salvation would be for God to forfeit the Holy Spirit out of the Trinity. But God cannot forfeit the Holy Spirit out of the Trinity, and by the same measurement, you cannot lose your salvation either. Your salvation is just as certain and sure as the eternal fact that the Holy Spirit is forever and always will be a part of the triune God. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. And then two very important verses that talk about the ministry of the Spirit in terms of our sanctification. Chapter 4, verse 30 in Ephesians. 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were, there it is again, sealed for the day of redemption. By the way, if all I had was Ephesians 4.30, I would know that it is improper to talk about the Holy Spirit as an it or as a thing. Why? Because you cannot grieve an it. You cannot grieve a thing. You can only grieve a person. There are many cults, in fact, all cults, without exception, will deny the deity of the Son, and almost always they will deny the personality of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, speak of the Spirit as a power, as a force, but they deny His personality. And so, deny the deity of the Son, deny the personality of the Holy Spirit are almost always characteristics of the cults that reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Ephesians 5.18 Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. The word dissipation means to indulge in something to the point that you hurt yourself. No, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be filled with wine which will be bad for you. But in contrast, be filled with the Spirit that will be good for you. In other words, in the same way that a drunk is controlled by alcohol or wine, you be controlled by the ministry of the Spirit. And then the Baptist faith and message in its second sense, I believe, made reference to the fact that the Holy Spirit was involved in the inspiration of the Bible. You say, where do they get that? Second Peter 1.21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were picked up and borne along as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, laying that as a broad biblical foundation, what are some of the things we can conclude theologically about the person and work of the Spirit as it relates to the article in the Baptist Faith and Message? Well, note with me there at the top of page 3. This article begins where it must by affirming that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and as such is fully divine. He is a person. He is not an it. He is not a thing. He is not a force. He possesses with the Father and the Son the one undivided divine nature. Only because He is Himself divine Yet the third member of the Trinity, can we understand the string of activities he is said to perform? But now let me stop for a moment and raise a question. Why do we call the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity? Why do we call him the, not the first, not the second, but the third? Well, part of the reason is found, I believe, in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 where we're said to be uh, taking the disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But theologically, if you look at the history of how God has revealed himself, there's a sense in which God the Father takes great prominence in the Old Testament. It is God the Son who is prominent in the Gospels. And then it is the ministry of the Spirit following Pentecost that tends to take a greater promise. So there's a sense in which the Spirit in His greatest manifestation does not show up and begin acting until the work of the Father and the work of the Son has already been accomplished. And so when He is called the third person, it doesn't mean He's inferior to the first or the second. It's just that in terms of their revealing historically, 
The Father tended to come first, then the Son, and then the Spirit. But again, I think perhaps the most crucial biblical text that leads us to speak in that kind of a way. By the way, the Bible never calls him the third person of the Trinity. In fact, the Bible never uses the word Trinity, though we believe that it is a biblically sound doctrine. But the Bible simply speaks of him in terms of progression of revelation in the third. The Father tends to dominate the Old Testament, the Son, the Gospels, then the Spirit as we see in Acts and also in the writings of Paul. Now, the Bible is far more concerned about what the Holy Spirit does as opposed to who he is. Basically, the Spirit says, he's God, boom, that's it, we move on. There's no great Christological development like John chapter 1 about Jesus being the Logos, or Colossians chapter 1 where Jesus is the image of the invisible God, or Philippians chapter 2 where he is the very essence of God, or Hebrews chapter 1 where he is the final revelation of God. You don't have any great uh, pneumatological text like you have these great Christological texts. But you do find the Bible speaking very definitely and very specifically to what does the Spirit do. Well, here's what he does. This article says of the Holy Spirit that he inspired, enables, exalts, convicts, calls, effects generation, baptizes, cultivates, seals, enlightens, and empowers. All of those are words found in the Bible. And all those are words found in Article 2 of the Baptist Faith and Message. Thus, one thing is clear. The Holy Spirit is intent on and active in carrying out the will and purposes of God. Indeed, the Bible is most interested in what He does. Not who He is, but what He does. So consider several main areas of his work noted in the article. And again, I think the article could have been longer. It could have said more, but it's, it's adequate. We'll, we'll say that. Number one, the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. He worked in the minds of biblical writers and so moved in them, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, that what they wrote as their own words was concurrently. If you're a note taker, mark that word. Was concurrently the fully authoritative reliable and inerrant Word of God. Uh, this last uh, three days, I was in Atlanta. Well, actually, I was outside of Atlanta near Callaway Gardens in, um, in Georgia. And I had the opportunity to speak to some 19 and 20-year-olds who are in a program that is sponsored and underwritten by Chick-fil-A. And uh, my assignment was to talk to them uh, about uh, hermeneutics and biblical uh, principle, principles of biblical uh, interpretation. And, of course, one of the things we did was we began by asking the question, why do we treat the Bible as special? Uh, why this book and not another book? And one of the things, of course, we noted was that the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed, so the Bible is called inspired writings. But in 2 Peter 1, 21, we're told that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. And so you have not only inspired writings, you have inspired writers. And I said to them several times, if I had to give you my understanding of the Bible in a single sentence, it is simply this. The Bible is the Word of God written in the words of men. That's the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God written in the words of men. How much of the Bible is divine? All of it. How much of the Bible is human? All of it. That's why I like that word there, concurrently. Concurrently, because, note again, 
what they wrote as their own words was concurrently the fully authoritative, reliable, and inerrant Word of God. Why? Because both God the Spirit and the human authors came together concurrently to produce the Word of God as we have it, the Word of God written in the words of men, infallible, inerrant, completely true, and trustworthy. So the Spirit of God, very active in producing our Bible. Number two, the Holy Spirit illumines the minds and hearts of believers to help them understand and apply that divine Word to their own lives. When we teach biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, we remind the students that there are two things that need to take place. One we're responsible for, one God's responsible for. We're responsible for interpreting the Bible rightly. We're responsible for rightly dividing the word of truth. But, praise God, based upon 1 Corinthians 2, we have the illuminating assistance and the illuminating power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, man's interpretation... Wedded to God's illumination is a great combination for us rightly understanding the Bible. So, not only does the Spirit produce the Scriptures, the Spirit also enables us to rightly understand the Scriptures as well. Number three, the Holy Spirit brings sinners to salvation. He comes most fundamentally, it's why it's underlined, to exalt Jesus Christ. John 16:14. This truth can hardly be overstated or overemphasized. Something too often done in Pentecostal and charismatic fellowships. The primary way he accomplished this is as he convicts us of our sin, top of page 4. He calls us to behold the beauty of Christ's saving work, and he regenerates us so that we respond now to God in hope and love through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, let me say it to you this way. <clears throat> Is the Holy Spirit happy when he is getting more attention than the Lord Jesus? No. He is never, ever, ever, ever happy if he is center stage and the focus of attention. He is most pleased, most thrilled, most satisfied when Jesus is being exalted and Jesus is being honored. That's why he came. He did not come to draw attention to himself. He came to draw attention to Jesus. Indeed, the next sentence says it so beautifully. On our own, apart from the enablement of the Spirit, we consider the cross of Christ foolishness and weakness. But because the Spirit opens our blind eyes and enlivens our hearts, we come to faith in Christ and begin the sure and certain path to our ultimate and complete transformation in Christ-likeness, which is the Spirit's goal. In other words, the Spirit is active in regenerating us. The Spirit is active in sanctifying us so that we become more like Christ. And the Spirit will be there at the end when we're glorified and made like Christ. So He is involved in the past, the present, and the future tense of our salvation. Number four. The Holy Spirit then transforms believers through empowering their ever-increasing sanctification. Indeed, the Spirit cares more about Christ-like character and conduct in God's people than any service they might render apart from these qualities. In other words, to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, to walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22 and 23, 
express the internal work, the internal work of the Spirit in making us wholly new people in Christ. Say, what are you getting at by that? Simply this. The church at Corinth was the most carnal, reprobate church in the first century. If I'd been alive in the first century, that would have been the last church I would have wanted to pastor. I said, no, God, send me to Philippi, uh, send me maybe to uh, Ephesus. If you have to, I can go visit Colossae. Wouldn't mind the Thessalonians too bad. But I do not want to pastor the church at Corinth. They're carnal. They, they, they get into all sorts of squabbles and fusses and fights. And yet Paul can also say of the Corinthians, You're, you may be the most gifted church that I have founded. In other words, you can have spiritual gifts and exercise those gifts in the flesh. And as a result of it, your gifts are of no value. Furthermore, the Bible is very clear. God is far more interested in you being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. If you do that, then you greatly increase the odds that you will exercise your spiritual gifts in a way that will build up and bless the body and not confuse and tear down the body. Number five, the Spirit is God's seal and guarantee that this internal work will continue until we are fully glorified. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we are assured the certainty of our full and final sanctification, which is our glorification. Number six. The Holy Spirit then equips us for meaningful and fruitful service in the church. One of the ways in which God brings about His transforming work in our lives is through the ministry of the church, the body of Christ. Thus, each member is gifted by the Spirit as He so wills, so that the body may be edified. A couple of comments there. Number one, God blesses us and gifts us with spiritual gifts. You at least have one, most likely, in my judgment, you have more than one, but nobody has all of them, all right? You have at least one, maybe more than one, nobody has all of them, all right? That's the first thing. Secondly, your spiritual gift is primarily, if not exclusively, for the benefit of the church, not you. You find nowhere in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, Ephesians 4 or 1 Peter 4, where the spiritual gifts are listed, you find nothing there that says God gives you your spiritual gift for your self-edification. No, God gives you your spiritual gift for the building up of your brothers and sisters in Christ in the local fellowship called the church. So our worship of the true and living God. Our love for one another and our service in the name of Christ are all done in the power of the Spirit, fulfilling the goal God set for us that we would indeed grow in Christ-likeness. Now, go to page 5 and let me make some final and some relevant modern uh, contemporary application of all this. Christians reflected on the work, excuse me, Christians reflected on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in greater depth in the 20th century than in any other era of Christian history. In fact, some people have called the 20th century the century of the Holy Spirit. Some theologians even refer to the three waves of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century. The Pentecostal movement, which was uh, launched in 1906 at Azusa Street Church in uh, L.A. The charismatic wave starting in the 1960s and going out of the charismatic wave, what is called the vineyard wave of the 1980s. 
So during the past century, you have the birth of Pentecostalism at the beginning. You have the birth of the charismatic movement in the early 60s. You have the continuation of it through the vineyard movement in the 1980s, which even eventually gave way to something called the Laughing Revival Movement. And again, uh, one of the vineyard churches in Toronto called the Airport Church in Toronto begin to have services where people began to laugh uncontrollably, claiming that they were being controlled by the Spirit. It got worse than that. You had people that began to bark, meow, roar. In fact, I have a friend, I will not name him, a, a dear brother, but always, you know, thinking maybe I'm missing out on something. Just never quite content that... What he had in the Bible was enough, or that's not fair. He thought that maybe there was more in the Bible that people like you and I see. They say it that way. So he went up to Toronto and went to one of their revival services. And we were sharing, uh, he was sharing this with me uh, at Sunday lunch one day after I had preached at his church. And I said, well, <clears throat> all right, you went to the Toronto airport church, the vineyard church up there where they have the laughing revival going on. Yes. I said, well, how was it? And his response was, oh, they're, they're very sincere people. I said, that's nice. That tells me nothing. And all of a sudden, his daughter said, tell him, Daddy. And he said, oh, he said no, no, you tell him, Daddy, or I'm going to tell him. So I said, all right, uh, tell me. He said, well, <clears throat> we had a great singing time. I said, good. And then we had... Spirit time. I said, okay, what happened during spirit time? He said, well, uh, there was a lot of laughing. Uh, There were people crawling around the floor, barking like a dog and roaring like a lion. And he said, but a lady came over to me, got right in my face, and for, I guess, about ten minutes, just did this. Cuckoo. Cuckoo, 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 cuckoo. For ten minutes. Ten minutes she got in his face and cuckooed like a cuckoo clock. To which I responded with a question. Where were you built up and edified? And he said, well, you know, and he said, now, I will admit, one thing that happened besides that bothered me. And I said, what was that? He said, after spirit time, the preacher got up to preach. And probably half of the congregation left. In other words, they were there for the music. They were there for the spirit time. When it came time for the word, several thousand of them, I've had what I need tonight, and they left. And so that's where, by the way, it even got to one extent where in some of these vineyard, uh, third wave, uh, laughing revival movements, People even began to vomit at worship services. In fact, they would actually have, just like some churches that don't take up a a, a walk-the-aisle offering, have in the back little uh, disposable areas where you can drop your money in. It's not disposable. That's not the right way of saying it. They've got containers where you can put your money in there. They begin to set up uh, uh, trumpet-shaped type of receptacles where people would literally go up and vomit into them because they felt that the Spirit was enabling them to vomit out 
uh, sins of the flesh, and more particularly to vomit out demons. Now, David's here. David's here. I'm not making any of this stuff up. This was very prominent when we first came to Southeastern in the early 1990s. It's since faded off the scene because, again, here's the bottom line, brothers and sisters. This is just for free. If you ground something in the Word, it will last. You ground something in experience, and it will die because you don't have enough energy to sustain your experience. But the Bible is eternal. It abides forever. And so this is part of the extremes. Now, see, we see this, and so we just say, well, I don't have anything to do with the Spirit. No, 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 no. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't go to the other extreme and deny his ministry and deny his importance altogether. Find biblical balance. Find the biblical portrait, all right? So because of this, next statement then. Despite the emphasis given to the Spirit over the past uh, century, 21st century Christians possess no more understanding of the Spirit than our Baptist forefathers. I would even go back and say we possess no more understanding of the Spirit than the early church fathers, many of whom wrote very wonderful treatises about the Holy Spirit. Thus, four truths about the Spirit in this context are worth our careful consideration. Number one, I'm back to it again. The BFNM affirms the person of the Holy Spirit. You see, in the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, the vineyard movement, they tend to view the Spirit more as a power that if I can tap into, I can do some pretty extraordinary things. But if you keep in mind that He is a person with whom you want to have a real, vital, genuine relationship, you will relate to Him and understand Him differently. Now, the term spirit, interestingly, functions as a neuter noun in the Greek language. We don't have neuter nouns in English, but in Greek there are masculine nouns, feminine nouns, and neuter nouns. Well, the word spirit, pneuma, is actually a neuter noun. Well, look at my next sentence. Grammatical rules mandate that a pronoun agree with the term it modifies in gender. Thus, the noun spirit grammatically requires the neuter pronoun, it. However, Jesus violated the grammar. Why? Because it's necessary theology. Jesus, however, referred to the Spirit not as an it, but as a he. That is, as a person. Thus, if an individual conceives of the Holy Spirit as a power, as did Simon in Acts 8, the question becomes, how can I get more of it? If, however, an individual understands the Holy Spirit as a person, the question then becomes quite different. How can I surrender more of my life to the person of the Spirit? Second, the Baptist faith and message sets forth the purpose of the Holy Spirit in John, from John 15 and John 16. Jesus explained the role of the Spirit as testifying about me or glorifying me once more. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, third, the Spirit of God places people into the body of Christ through the act of baptism, spirit baptism. The Baptist Faith and Message then committee added an important clarification. This next statement was not in the 1925 or the 1963 statement, but it was added in the 2000 statement to clarify and to counter the Pentecostal charismatic misunderstanding here, and that is this, at the moment of regeneration. He baptizes every believer into the body 
of Christ. Thus, this statement combats Pentecostal teaching that claims that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs after conversion. In certain Pentecostal fellowships, you get saved here, and then later, you get the Spirit. And when you get the Spirit, almost always in the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, the evidence that you have got the Spirit is that you what? Speak in tongues. Problematic. Because it's not biblical. First of all, the Bible, even if tongues is a valid gift today, it nowhere says that one gift is for everybody. Furthermore, they are wrong in saying that you get saved first and then get the Spirit later. No, he already told us in Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you have none of Him. So when you get saved, you get all of the Holy Spirit you are ever going to get at the moment of your conversion, regeneration. Fourth and finally... The Spirit does bestow spiritual gifts as the Spirit wills. You don't get a vote in what gift you get. You get what the Spirit gives you. Every believer then receives at least one spiritual gift, yet the Sovereign Spirit distributes spiritual gifts without the input of human desire. In fact, if, if, if God gave me a vote, I would want the gift of evangelism. That's the gift I would want. I love to see people saved. I love these guys that have this incredible ability, one-on-one, just to share the gospel. So if God let me vote on it, that would be the spiritual gift that I would like to have. But that was not what he gave me. I'm quite certain that he gave me the gift of the, of the teacher or the pastor teacher. And so that's the gift that I primarily operate out of, though I also am still responsible to share my faith, just like someone does so effectively with the gift of evangelism. Top of page 6, then. The New Testament term for spiritual gifts is the word charisma. The translation for charis is the Greek word grace. The ma suffix indicates result. So a spiritual gift, a charisma or a charisma, is a grace gift that produces results. That's a really good way of saying it. It is a grace gift that produces results. Thus, God gifts individual Christians. Why? For their benefit? No. For the benefit of the body of Christ. Not for their personal glory, not for their personal benefit, but rather he gives us those gifts so that we will be used by him to build up and make stronger his body called the church. So, the Holy Spirit, it's a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit, he is divine. The Holy Spirit is most happy when... When he is bringing honor and glory and exaltation to the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have indeed revealed yourself to us as the God that you are. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity, three in one. And how we thank you for the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Lord... Help us to avoid the extreme of being cold and indifferent and fearful of the Spirit on one extreme. Help us, Lord, to avoid excesses that devolve into all sorts of confusion and silliness on the other end. Help us, though, as B.H. Carroll said, to be lashed to the Scriptures as we seek to develop our understanding of who you are as Holy Spirit and what you do as the Spirit of truth. May we indeed find ourselves seeking your filling walking in your power and bearing your fruit all again for the honor and glory of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen and amen. 
Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.